This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. episode 31 of the Mad Bad and Damage Train Showcase, where white bloggers, filmmakers and fellow film junkies help me work for the 1001 film introduction to cult and obscure cinema, which is the Mad Bad and Damage Strange list. As always, I'm your host, Edward Jones, of from the Dexter DVD Hell and Channel Superhero, and on this episode we'll be looking at a pair of coming-of-age stories as we look at both the classic Stephen King adaptation, Stand By Me, as well as the early film for both Elijah Wood and Macaulay McCulkin in The Good Son. But my guest tonight is not only the owner of the deadly doorhouse of horror nonsense, but one half of the Feminine Critique podcast and a regular guest on the show. As always, it gives me great pleasure to welcome back Emily Intervino. Hey, 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 folks. How are you doing today, Emily? I'm doing great because we're about to talk to, to talk about two movies that are very near and dear to my heart. For I know. very different reasons. One, the one of these films, Stand By Me in particular, when I was going for the list... We came to stand by me, and there was only one person, and that's yourself, that I knew I wanted to discuss this movie with. Um, and the reasons why we will discuss in a minute, because I know, as you've said already, it is a film very dear, dear to your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and one that I'm right in saying that your family puts a lot of uh, value on. Oh, yeah. When both my husband and my now sister-in-law, my brother's wife, when my parents found out they had not seen Stand By Me before dating us, my parents both seriously questioned if me and my brother were, like, allowed to get married and everything else because they just didn't trust that we would date anybody that hadn't seen the movie. <laughs> and since then, my husband has seen it. Before we got married, I made sure, because otherwise he probably wouldn't have been allowed to wed me at my parents' house. Uh, and thankfully, he liked it, so we were okay there. Yeah, yeah, it's... Oh, if your family's got traditions, some make you go out mm-hmm. and hunt a bear, and apparently your family makes sure they like Stand By Me. So Yeah, it's, you know, on the list of movies that you have to have seen and liked in order to marry an Andravia. So Okay, so, so there is more than just Stand By Me. There, There's a few others on there. Um, they would come to me as we see them, but yeah, it's a, a lot of, like Dawn of the Dead and some of the other big yeah. ones that were just staples in my household growing up. Okay. I would say those aren't bad films. I remember going out with a girl and it was sort of like, oh, you have to like my favorite film of all time. And I'm like, what's that? And it's like, oh, it's Dirty Dancing. Oh, uh, and, and I did my part. I thought, you know, I'm in touch with my feminine side. You know, I can sit and watch Dirty Dancing. It's got Patrick Swayze. Mm-hmm. He was cool in Steel Dawn and Roadhouse and uh, Donnie Darko. Um, and obviously I sat and watched it and then took my feminine side outside and shot it. Um, well, I will say, I don't know what this says about, again, the Entravia name, but my dad loves Dirty Dancing. 
Good my father him. has like a list of movies like they don't they have a dvd player my parents but they don't really watch things in there instead they just chivo and record stuff yeah and then just he goes back to them when there's nothing on and he has dirty dancing t-votes that he can always go back to the final dance scene well <laughs> yep. works you really i guess i exactly obviously we've just come out of halloween season uh which obviously is a big time for sort of like the culture cool and obscure film blogging community especially the horror blogging community where a lot of people take on the 30 days of horror challenge and mm-hmm. for myself it obviously suffers from that sort of oversaturation but obviously i mean what's your sort of i mean this halloween you went and you went away for halloween i'm right to say i did yeah i went my i have a friend who lives in south carolina who had a big halloween party and had been planning it for a while uh so i went down with my husband and we did our third couple's costume uh I was, I know, I will say, I used to think the idea of couples' costumes were just awful and icky and just gross. But then I realized that uh, my husband is somebody that we can do really good costumes with. Yeah. So uh, since we've been together, we've done Hannibal and Clarice. We've done uh, George and Lucille Bluth from Arrested Development. And this year we did Laurie Strode and Dr. Loomis from Halloween. Okay. That, as I said, I completely set that one up because I did really love the the halloween costume it was the easiest costume i've ever done in my life it was it was on my really... end i didn't need a fake beard so it was great i would say i was like looking at your husband dressed as uh, yep. loomis and there's another actor that's like uh bold with a beard and i been i've been since you put those pictures up trying to place where this actor is um and it's not um romero for me are i'm just trying to think of another actor who's bold with a beard or play uh-huh. there's another one i'm and I, I think it must be the bald guy from High Fidelity in uh, Thank You for Smoking that I keep thinking of whenever I see that picture. But okay, I do love the attention to detail. You had the hanger and the the torn sleeve. I had the hanger. I ripped my. I got a blue button-up shirt and ripped it at the exact place where hers rips. Uh, that was pretty much all I needed to do. It was on my end. It was great. The only problem was I couldn't wear my glasses, which meant I had to squint a lot. But that kind of works. <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis has little eyes, so it all fit. That's fine. Are you enjoying Jamie Lee Curtis being back on screens with Scream Queens then? I haven't watched Scream Queens, and the reason, plain and simple, is just that Ryan Murphy I have had a very complicated relationship with. Yeah. And this this year is also the first year I get, I'm not doing American Horror Story. I finally have decided that in my old age, um, I keep... I keep investing in seasons of TV that keep disappointing me and making me feel like I've wasted time. And since American Horror Story has done that to me three years in a row, I'm like, you know what? I don't need to do it. And when Scream Queens and I saw the materials for it, I'm like, oh, I I don't let me wait and hear what people say. And I have heard the most mixed things, which and some I mean, and a lot of people have really told me they're like, no, you would love it. I'm like. Yeah, but then you said that, and then you said you hated the next episode, and you know what? I put up with Glee for six years, and it was that exact thing, and I just don't need to do that to myself again. Did you make it to the end of Glee? I keep forgetting I did, yeah. I I did. I mean, I used to do a podcast on Glee, and it got to the point where my (laughs) podcasting partner, Erica, was like, I'm not watching it anymore. We can't. We can still call it Gleecast, but I'm not going to watch the show, so we can talk about something else. Uh, But I, I watched it till the end, and it... It just, you know, I don't understand why it's so hard for him to do consistency, but it is. Yeah. So I've I've given up on him. Uh, American Horror Story, I get to the halfway point, and then I just just give up. Um, 
I mean, it's, they know what they have 12 episodes. It is a self-contained season. I don't yeah. understand how every single year you get to a point where you're like, oh, I guess they ran out of time and are giving up on that subplot. So why did they even write it? It makes no sense. It's too if much If you're doing 22 is... episodes and you don't know what your actors are doing and everything, I get it. Like, you're going to have loose ends. You're going to have stories that aren't working, so you give up on them. But if you have 12 episodes that you can lay out all at once because you know you're only doing the self-contained season, how can you still waste time on stories that aren't going to matter? I don't understand it. And that's why I finally just gave up. Yeah. I think it's the big, probably one of the biggest hacks going. Yeah. Uh, I've watched the first episode of Screen Queens and enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've yet to watch the second one. At the same time, I've only watched the first episode of the Scream TV series, which Christine recommended me, which yes. I enjoyed. Um, eventually, I will get around to watching it, but unfortunately, I made the mistake of watching Orange is the New Black and now completely distracted with that instead. Fair enough. But um, yeah, I wish that he would come up with some sort of proper plotting. It's I, The first season, I actually watched the whole way through, um, but his lack of knowledge of how to write a ghost story just <laughs> annoyed me. That's fair. If you write a ghost story, all your ghosts have to follow the same rules. You can't have, like, this ghost can follow this set of rules, and this ghost can follow yep. this set of rules. You you have, like, one set of rules. And well, you, and that's the it. biggest problem I think he's had is setting rules for his universe. And that's really evident in... I have seen American movies, so I still say Coven, but in Coven, season three. Because he does this thing where he starts killing characters and then saying, oh, you know what? They're not actually dead. They don't have to die. Oh, but this character's really dead, but that character isn't. Yeah. And it's impossible to be invested when you don't know the rules. Because you don't... How should... Every situation where characters are in danger, you're like, oh, I guess it, it might not matter if they get shot. Mm. So should I care? Should I not care? And it's... As a viewer, it's really frustrating because you feel like the creators aren't invested in their characters or their situation, so why should I be? Yeah. I think, because I know it's going to turn up on Netflix, this is why I haven't invested in this new series. As much as I love the fact Lady Gaga is in it, and I think yeah. she's a tremendous actress. I love oh yeah, I, I, I like her. Um, I love her as a performer, and I love her as an actress, so mm-hmm. uh, it's win-win all way around for that, but I'm not going to watch it. I'm going to wait for it to come out on Netflix. I've got mm-hmm. other things I'm going to invest in, yep. but um, it's nice to know I'm not alone on that, but uh, okay. kudos to yourself for actually making it all the way through Glee. I got to the last season and gave up. <laughs> I mean, I, I've made it... It's hard for me to give up on a show because I feel like after a certain point, I'm like, I, I've already invested energy in it. And Sons of Anarchy was like that. The last two years of Sons of Anarchy, every day I would watch it. I would fast forward through half of it because I'd have it on in the morning where I'm like, I only have 45 minutes, which should be an episode, except every episode was an hour and a half for no reason. So I would just fast forward through like any scene that I could tell was just going to not do anything. Yeah. But I still got to the point where I'm like, I would give up the show if I didn't know it was ending. Uh, and so after after that and after constantly hearing my husband say, you know, nobody's forcing you to watch this. I'm like, you know, I if I start investing in it, then I feel like I have to finish it. So that's why I've kind of decided I'm like, I'm not going to until the majority of people whose opinions I respect tell me I should watch it. I am not going to do that to myself. There are a lot more movies I could be watching than a season of TV that's going to frustrate me. Yeah. So. I think the other problem is that that Murphy confuses what is actually supposed to be horror and what is basically just exploitation under a glossier cover. Um, yes. 
as he just loves it. He thinks that if you throw enough graphic violence and sex at the screen, that somehow this makes you edgy. Uh, when it doesn't, it just, you know, you meet to the point where you're just bored. And I think you can no longer use these shock tactics because we've all seen it. He's, he's used up all of his tricks. He really has. And with Freak Show, it was really evident when the ending of that show, because you got to a point where there were so many... Uh, dream death sequences where characters died, but it was like, no, it was a dream, ha ha ha. And then the final episode being this really brutal, ugly mass shooting that just felt nasty and mean and unpleasant and cruel to the characters and cruel to the audience. And it didn't do anything for me as a viewer, but make me feel ugly. It didn't do anything for the show. And at that point, I'm like, he's, I don't know what they're doing, but I don't like it. So So obviously, while on the subjects of obviously horror and extreme violence, really. Um, I don't know if you've obviously seen uh, in the various blogs or anything that's going around uh, the real-life horror experience uh, known as McKamey Manor. Is this the one in San Diego? Or I California? believe it is San Diego. Basically, it's an eight-hour experience, and they brag with the legend that no one has managed to make it through. But if you watch any of the videos, it's just basically three guys torturing people uh, under the banner of being horror uh, i have heard my friend was actually telling me about it and isn't it like you donate you don't actually pay for it like you you, you pay the dog money food. goes to a dog rescue yeah which is sweet i mean and bizarre whenever i hear about these real horror experiences um because i've done the ones where you walk through in like the the uh the conga line and basically the actors yeah the actors can touch you, but you can't touch them. Right. Yes, it's, it's the stripper joints. Of yeah, it's like a stripper being in a strip club, isn't it? It's, but, you know, doing a congo at the same time. And then you have these, like, the blackout um, experiences in that where basically you're thrown into this situation and they essentially just torch you within sort of a safe, mm-hmm. sort of supposedly safe uh, sort of bounds and stuff. I mean, for myself, that isn't horror. That's just more a sort of, a game of sadomasochistic sort of pleasure. Right, so like right. these people pay to be kidnapped or it's one of those. Areas. Yeah. I mean, it's a fantasy, whether it's, it's, you know, I mean, I guess the same thing could be said of people that pay to be like subdued by a dominatrix. It's just a fantasy of some sorts. And I can understand the appeal. Uh, and for me, it would just be like, you think of how many movies that people like us watch where characters are put through this And I guess you just always kind of have that wondering of what is that really like? Could I stand it? Could I do that? And I could see like if you're basically saying, okay, I'm going to put myself in a very safe situation. I'm sure they have like a safe word and they probably have like a button you push as soon as you actually want it, end it and everything. Uh, I get the appeal of it. Uh, I don't know that it's anything I would ever want to do, but I could. I could totally understand somebody doing it, and I could see what you would get out of that, which yeah. is just kind of this test of yourself and your senses, maybe. I know, yeah, I'd say it's always something that is something I never would personally want to do, but I constantly see a number of bloggers out there, uh, such as Zobo with Shotgun. Um, uh, the Jaded Viewer also did a whole series where he was basically subjecting him to these, and I just wonder how you can class this as being the same as a a spook house or like mm-hmm. a walk through horror maze um for myself there's sort of one of the they're not exactly the same thing but yet they're still classed as these real real horror experiences so right right 
But uh, yeah, I would love to, if anyone has been on those or wants to share their experiences, then please let us know in the comment section or on the Facebook page. Uh, you can also yeah, I'd be very interested to hear about that. Yeah, um, also the Twitter as always is open, it's Elwood underscore Jones. Uh, please let us know your experience of real life horror. Let's uh, see if we can get some sort of discussion happening on this. Uh, do you Ooh. think it's horror do you, or is it not? Uh, let us know on the site or the uh, Twitter feed. Um, on to the first of our uh, films though, this evening. We're going to start with obviously Stand By Me because it's obviously the film with the most importance to yourself. Um, and I feel that if we do the, the our other selection this evening, um, it may get a little distracted because it is so absolutely bonkers insane. So I'm going to do the sane one first. That's super. wise. That's wise of you. Um, for those not familiar with the film, it's, it's a adaptation uh, by Rob Rainer who also gave us the, another Stephen King adaptation, Misery. Um, this one being an adaptation of his novella, The Body. Uh, it's a coming-of-age story following four friends who go on a road trip of sorts to find the body of a missing boy. The film itself is notable for starring a number of talents who had obviously gone to bigger and better things, such as Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Fieldman, and Jerry O'Connell, as well as a very young and broody Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> who at this point was just really sort of dark and moody. He was in that Lost Boys uh, sort of period. Yeah, he was, he was your go-to punk actor. Yeah. Um, whereas now we sort of see him as the post-cowboy Sutherland. Mm, sort of like, yeah. you know, he's he's a little bit older, but still got that edge to him. But well, it's it, like he went from being young guns to being like middle-aged guns. <laughs> middle-aged guns. What's your sort of opening thoughts on this one, Emily? I know you've obviously said already the importance your family puts on potential suitors like this <laughs> film well i think that i mean there's a lot to frame it i guess one is that um this is a movie that i saw as a kid it's one i think it makes a really good coming of age film because i think it's a great film that for parents to watch with their kids when their kids reach a certain age because in this movie i think there's a lot about death and there's a lot about friendship that and because it's a period film, because it's set in the early 60s, you kind of have a distance to it, but it's a good way to kind of deal with some really heavy, real topics. Uh, because, the, I mean, you have death in the film where the kind of MacGuffin is that these four boys are going to find a dead body. And the other part to it is that Will Wheaton's character, uh, his older brother, died fairly recently the, you know the start of the film and that's a big it's a big part of it there's flashbacks to him played by a very young John Cusack uh, so you get this kind of lingering idea of death hanging over it uh, I also just read Pet Cemetery, so I think that's also really strong in my head right now um, but so that being one part of it and that the other flip side of it or two flip sides one is that it's a the score of this movie is so great. You have the best soundtrack because it's all these really great 60s hits. Yeah. And then the other part to it is it's very much about four teenage boys who are all very different and very, on one hand, very much archetypes. You have the kind of uh, geeky fat kid, Vern. You have the kind of crazy, uh, crazy kid, Teddy, Corey Feldman. You have the like strong, silent bad boy with a heart of gold river phoenix and then you have the kind of center of it all in will wheaton and as a like friendship movie it's kind you you see that kind of pattern in other movies where they kind of deal you know now and then is sort of the very like 
flimsy girl version of Stand By Me that has the same idea about its characters. You have, you know, the kind of the writer and so on. Um, but this is just one that does it the best. Uh, Rob Reiner was on a tear in this era. You had probably, I think, one of the best directorial runs of any director of all time. Because you go from, let me see, you go from Spinal Tap, yeah. uh, The Sure Thing, which I don't know, you do Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, and North. But we don't. North isn't nearly as bad as everybody makes it out to be, by the way. But I'm surprised you haven't seen the Sure Thing. I would have. I have that... not, and I don't know why I haven't. Ah, uh, Sure Thing, I would have put as being like alongside Weird Science, Sixteen Candles. It's one of those sort of team movies, um, and it also stars a young, um, young Cusack, which is worth. Oh, very watching nice. For. Yeah, John Cusack. I uh, believe he plays the older brother in this one as well. Oh, okay. Now I know of it, but I have, for whatever reason, I have never seen it. So I will amend that in time. Um, but yeah, as you, as you said, this is. Uh, I think this film is best if you watch it as a kid, if you can. Obviously, if you're listening to this now as an adult, uh, sorry. <laughs> um, if you so if you're listening to it as a kid, well, hey, yeah. uh, you should probably tell your parents you're listening to this. <laughs> But it's when I first saw this, uh, saw this as a, as a kid. Uh, I would say I was sort of in my early teens when I saw this. I was in Scouts, and there were so many elements of this story that I could sort of relate to. I could see yeah. my group of friends within the four friends we see here, and this idea yep. of obviously going out into the woods and following the train tracks to find this body. It, the whole area of uh, which it's set. It's set in uh, Castle Rock in Maine, and it's very similar to where I was obviously growing up in Cornwall, which again is just all coastal town and farmland and woods. It's that sort of similar area to the, what you have over in Oregon. So again, it just made it all the more easier to associate with. But they're so believable. These four yeah. kids—they're not like adults in a child's body. They're not smart asses. If the smart asses, they're basically ragging on each other. Or mm-hmm. it's sort of that very sort of childlike level of wit. It's full of obscenities and oh yeah, and the, the conversations they have are so the kind of conversations that you have as teenage, as kids, as twelve year olds. Yeah. And that you know, would you know, if Mighty Mouse and Superman were fighting, who would win? Like, I have totally asked questions like that as a kid or as a thirty three year old, and the. Uh, what I what I have to ask you is which of the four do you most identify with? Oh, I mean, for the longest time, I always always loved Teddy, mm. and I don't know if it was because he was uh, Corey Feldman. And look, watching it now, I mean, there's so many elements I missed. Obviously, as a kid, the fact that he's got this unstable father, and yeah, and that, I think it was just the fact he was like the, the hyperactive one who's like living out these war fantasies. He's got this idea of who his father is, that his father was on the beaches of Dunkirk and he's going to go into the army and follow it, despite the fact that his father's actually, like, abusive to him and tried to burn his ear off Mm -hmm. the stove. A lot of these facts sort of go over you as a kid. You don't remember this because you just focus more on the journey. Uh, Right, and you just, you buy into, you you want to believe the kids and not what the bullies are saying or you're not listening to those things. Yeah, I mean, the fact is you don't, pick up on the fact that Chris, um, again, is from a, a broken home. You, you don't pick up on these, mm-hmm. these sort of facts. You yeah. see Chris for who Chris is. You see Teddy for who he is. So Chris obviously being like 
the leader. He's like the father figure of the group. And the, yeah. I love the scene. I mean, even as a kid, I love the scene where he scolds Geordie for saying that he's going to like flunk out. He's going to go and hang out in the remedial classes. And he's like, you know, I'm going to yeah. come down and kick your ass if you if you do that. You belong up in these high right, classes. Right. Like how how dare you? Yeah, you have the potential. You need to use it. Don't listen to what everybody else says. And, it's um, yeah, and I mean, Chris is such a wonderful character, mm-hmm. and and especially when you're and I, this was one of those things I didn't realize for a long time is that uh, Chris's older brother is one of the bullies. Yes, again, this is something that only dawned on this this watching. I've seen this film, I hope, countless times, right? But only today dawned on the fact that his his brother's one of the bullies, as you said. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense because it's yeah, that's the path that you expect. Or that everybody would expect a kid like Chris to take. That, well, his brother is a screw-up. His parents are probably screw-ups. So, yeah, Chris probably stole the milk money and is going to flunk out and do all the same things. And without Gordy, you know, and we we learn more about this as the movie goes on, but without Gordy there to kind of believe in him, you kind of figure, yeah, that's probably what would have happened to him. I mean, which of the boys did you, or which character in the show, I said not just (laughs) the boys, did you... Oh, I'll I'll tell you, and... Uh, for me, it's Vern all the way. <laughs> uh, I am. I have had many a moment in life where I have done something, and I have had friends say, basically, say like, "That's so Vern." Uh, <laughs> things like bringing bringing the comb is the kind of thing. Like, if my friends and I were going on a trip to like, and I've done this. Like, I've, like my friend and I went to Costa Rica, and we did this very like rugged adventure there. And I am pretty sure I was more excited about bringing, like, a really cool bottle opener than anything else. <laughs> like, I probably didn't have the right shoes, but I had this really cool gadget, just in case. Yeah. Uh, and there's just a lot of um, Vern's conversations. Like, my, my favorite line of the entire film is probably uh, after we get the tale of Lardass, is after Gordy has told this tale and all the kids are listening, and Gordy says, I just have one question. Did Lardas have to pay to get into the competition? <laughs> no, Vern. They just let him in. Oh, okay, great, great story, Gordy. Great story. Like that's just the kind of question that I would have after somebody would tell me a story. Uh, so there's a part of me that likes to think I'm Will Wheaton, and that I'm like the. And I think within my friends, like I like to think of myself as the person that can hold, hold things together. But the flip side of that is I'm the one that's um, like the reason that we almost get hit by a train. I'm I am Vern, and I accept that. Yeah. I was so angry at Vern. Even now, no matter how many times I say it, I'm so angry at Vern for how he's choosing to cross the bridge. Because he's basically crawling across the bridge and it takes him forever to get his fat ass off up the track. And I mean, at this point, it's like, <laughs> you're like, run, run. And you're like, and the fact that Jordy is running behind him, I'm thinking, you can outrun him. Good. But see, that's the same. Like, every time I watch a movie like Adventures in Babysitting, for example, or um, Last Crusade, where there's a scene where a character has to like walk across a plank that's really high up. My, I always watch that and I'm like, just crawl. Like I would crawl. I would get down on all fours and hug it and just shimmy and it would take me longer, but I wouldn't fall off. Yeah. So again, I truly do identify with Vern for that decision. Yeah, it's... Oh, it's uh, <laughs> I, I love the fact that He's uh, obviously got this jar of pennies that he's buried under the porch, but he lost the map. And then he spent six months <laughs> digging holes yep. looking for this bloody jar. Oh, yeah. I, I've, I've, 
I am known for putting things in safe places and then never finding them again. So again, I totally you, get burned. You're just living up to to Ben's namesake now. Yeah, I'm just waiting till like I blossom into Jerry O'Connell as an adult, but mm. still waiting for like the you know sudden like the new muscle mass and everything. But in time, time. I've yet to meet anyone who wants to be Geordie. It's like um, if you're watching Goonies, no one wants to be Mikey. They want to yeah. Be, they want to well, be Data. He's or... the every man. He's the kind of uh, you know he is designed to be the sort of control of the group yeah right you get wacky teddy um funny Vern, uh cool chris and then you have gordy who's just the sort of uh he's the narrator yeah and he as well he should be because he's the one that can observe everything and can kind of watch it from afar do you think because he is the narrator that the you feel like the less need for him to sort of stand out i mean we obviously have some development with him the fact that his parents uh are still sort of reeling from the fallout of the death of his older brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get the scene, which I'm still not sure if it's like a dream sequence or whether it actually happened where uh, his father's at the funeral and he's, he says that he wishes it was him. Oh, it should have been you. Gordy. Yeah. I, mean, I always assume that was a dream because he's, he is dreaming. Like that is a literal dream when it happens. But I think, and I can't remember the conversation he has right after Chris, after that with Chris, um, but I think his father might have said that, uh, not in that direct of a manner, but certainly sent off that vibe. And we see that at, you know, even when it's a flashback to a happier time when his brother is alive and they're having dinner and, you know, the dad is just so focused on John Cusack and him playing football and all this. And John Cusack's trying to say like, oh, hey, you know, Gordy's really talented too. He's a really good writer. Did you read his story? And so I think Gordy always knew that um, he, that if his father had the choice, it would have been Gordy. If his father had to choose which son to keep, it would not have been Gordy, who he saw as something lesser than this kind of golden boy brother. Yeah. And I mean, it's a very... You know, this is a Stephen King adaptation, and there are so many tenants of this movie that are just so Stephen King. Uh, you know, the the dead brothers feels very. Sometimes they come back, but I think most importantly, the the sociopathic murderous bullies. And now, what, I remember when um, on Gleecast this used to always come up. And tell me if you've had experiences. So. I went to high school. I went to middle school. I went to elementary school. I never knew bullies that would actually kill you. Did you know bullies like that? I knew of them. I personally didn't uh, go anywhere near those ones. Mm-hmm. I certainly knew and encountered plenty of bullies who would kick the shit out of you. Um, mm-hmm. Which, you know, that was most of my high school days and that. But, um, yeah, I, I don't... There were obviously those sort of bullies who you wouldn't put it past them that they would, they mm-hmm. would, uh, they that they would kill you. So I, I can understand like a character like uh, Ace. Yeah, that there's someone like that was it that someone like that would exist. And again, it's really down to uh, Kevin Sutherland's performance here that it's more believable. Mm-hmm. I mean, this yeah. is one of the rare examples where you've got 1950s culture being represented. And it doesn't make you want to like, just like grate your grind your teeth and stuff because, greaser culture. Right, it's not all about poodle skirts and you know happy vacuums. Yeah, actual giving you the fifties as like no, you know what people were shitty back then too. 
Oh, and it's again, it's just so overworked. And I've there's so many yeah. retro revivals, especially over here. And it's all like, oh, 1950s, it was so cool, it was so hip. It was it's like, like one of the biggest myths of America, I think, is that, and I don't know if it's the same in Britain, but like one of the biggest myths is that the 1950s were this idyllic time. It's like, no, they weren't, they just wore cuter outfits. Yeah, we they kind of uh, we get this sort of sunny Americana version of the 1950s, the same way yeah. that uh, we have this like. Um, sexed up version of the 60s which mm-hmm. for like a small percentage maybe it was but a lot of it was still buttoned down England I can tell you right, that right. It's, I love that the, they actually managed to take this time and period and and not just do the usual cliche things and just go oh yeah. look what we've gone here we've made it all look very visually uh, appealing in that it's just yeah it's it's for it being a movie about a character's nostalgia it's not a nostalgic film it doesn't make you want to go back to this time other than the soundtrack, because the soundtrack's great. No, I mean, this is more, this really is just a story of this time in Julie's life and about these friends he grew up with and the eventual separation they would go mm-hmm. through. This just it happens to be this one adventure that they went on. Yeah. And it's also one of those rare Stephen King stories where it doesn't feel like they pulled the story like out of nowhere. It actually has a proper ending to it, which I really like. Yeah, which is not good. Not a common uh, bond of Stephen King writing, generally. Yeah. Anyone who's uh, battled the way for The Stand will uh, certainly tell you that one. Oh, God. Yeah, why does The Stand end 200 pages after it ends? And why does it end that way anyway, when nothing actually matters in that scene? Oh, yeah, I could go on about the ending of The Stand. (laughs) Oh, I yeah, I mean, if we were talking about adaptations of uh, King novels, I think I've got more than enough to say about the recent adaptation of Under the Dome. Oh, I didn't even try because I had waited to read. I didn't read the novel because I had waited to yeah. hear what people had to say about it. And basically everybody's like, well, the ending. I'm like, nope, I'm good. However, <laughs> side note, did you read Revival? No, I've, this thing I've read the early works of King. You know, the ones you shall grow up with, mm-hmm. things like sure. Misery and The Shining and that. I haven't read any of his, like, later works. Okay. So. I, I will just put in a recommendation for a revival. It okay. is, uh, it, it ends well. It is not that, for Stephen King, it doesn't feel overly long. Uh, and I really enjoyed it, but I don't want to say any more. I'll okay. just give it to you as a, perhaps you should look into reading it. I will. I, I mean, I was reading the interesting fact the other day that Stephen King at this point has sold so many books that every household uh, will have two books, <laughs> the Bible and a Stephen King book. And a Stephen King novel. <laughs> so, That's amazing. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you read any of his uh, son's books, Joe Hill. I read uh, Heart Shaped Box and I really enjoyed it. Okay. I didn't like Heart Shaped Box. I liked uh, 20th Century Ghosts, was it? Or... Okay. The uh, short story collection he did. I haven't read Horns and I haven't seen the film version. So, mm-hmm. um, but no, he stands well on and on his own as a writer, and I yeah. appreciate the fact that he used a pen name rather than mm-hmm. yeah, it would have been very easy. Um, and I like to having now read Pet Cemetery, thinking um, about how he really was Gage. <laughs> Because there is that Stephen King talks about with Pet Cemetery, what inspired him to write it was, sure enough, his son one day was running into the road and he just barely saved him. Yeah. And it's like, oh, so Joel is like Gage Creed. Oh, King's frequently put like real life experiences. Oh, there. yeah. There, I mean, so much so. And the more New England his books are, and yeah. I mean, Stand By Me is, the more you can see, you can just see him pulling from every aspect of his life. And for him, it works because it's the... 
the more specific your writing can be, the more believable it ultimately is. And yeah. so when he's writing in his comfort zone, and that's what I liked about Revival was it is pure Stephen King writing about a kid growing up in the 60s, uh, New England, and then he joins a rock band. Like, it is pure mm. Stephen King oozing out what he knows, and it works because he's writing in his zone. Oh, I mean, you only have to look at uh, his his much-overlooked uh, TV series, Kingdom Hospital, and the fact that the main character, it opens with him being run over. Uh, <laughs> which, obviously, again, King tying into the same life, you know, that same time he was cursed with that gypsy curse oh. and lost all that weight. Yeah. So naturally that's, that's how, it, how it works for most people but um, I love the we mentioned already the story of Lardass which for myself is just a little self-contained movie of its own and yep. it works so wonderfully in this film because normally when you have these sort of offshoot stories it's because they're trying to pad out the runtime but here it yeah. feels that it fits in very naturally and it's this campfire story and I just look the absolute carnage it's so comical compared to how straight the rest of the film is and it feels so much like what a 12 year old would tell his friends and what they would love like it's a story about a fat dude puking and then everybody puking and i'm actually somebody that normally like i'm not a big puke fan on film but i love it in stand by me because it's so comical and over the top but again, like it has this context where it totally works, and it's not gross somehow watching it. It's yeah, yeah. It's Rob Reiner is, and I mean he he had such an odd career trajectory because he just hit that point. Uh, and I won't say after North because I actually think the American President is a really good film, um, and has a lot of what makes a good Rob Reiner film. It has it in there. But he just went on, he just had such a renaissance run of great films, right? This is Spinal Tap, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride. Right there, you have four films that have survived the test of time. Uh, And when you add in When Harry Met Sally, which, whether you hate romantic comedies or not, one of the most influential films to a genre is When Harry Met Sally, and Misery, like, he, it, it, what's odd, too, is looking at his films is trying to figure out, well, what's the common bond? Like, what is it that he can do as a director? Because style-wise and genre-wise, they're really different films. Uh, you would not necessarily think the guy who made Misery is the same guy that would make The Princess Bride. And what works about them, I think part of it's the humor. I think he's really good at being able to bring the humor out well without forcing it. And I'm sure that's something that you learn when you're an actor on a comedy show, because you are every day you're listening to an audience respond to humor and what's working, what's not working. Um, But it's, it's really remarkable the career he had in that decade. And I mean, it's a, I would love to see him get it back. Uh, well, I mean, he seems he's decided to become an actor for some reason. Um, he's currently Jesse's father on New Girl. Yeah, I mean, he's he's somebody that will always work. Uh, because why would you not cast Rob Reiner if he wants to be cast? He's apparently filming uh, a movie called LBJ, um, which my husband's going to be very excited about with a really good cast, it looks like. Okay. With Jennifer Jason Lee, Woody Harrelson playing LBJ. Yeah. 
This could be interesting. I mean, this is, an, again, another American president biopic, which obviously is going to play well within the States. Um, I'm not sure how it's going to play too well to an international market because we don't True. tend to pick up on sort of biopics of uh, presidents particularly well because we just don't have that reference. Oh, sure. Really. Unless it's some, something yeah. like JFK, uh, which is like a, an event. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of right, doesn't have the same impact there, which totally understandable. But did you, by any chance, see The American President? I haven't seen The American President. I mean, only recently, I'd say, in the last year or so, watched uh, When Harry Met Sally. And I thought for the longest time that was just like a, like a disposable romantic comedy. Yeah. And I heard it on uh, Bubba Wheat's uh, podcast, Film Why. And they were, it was like talking about it. And I was like, oh, this, this sounds really, really good. And mm-hmm. I remember, I think I caught the end of it. And I, again, it was just so different that I yeah. went to go back and rewatch the whole thing. And. It's so much more than the scenes everyone sort of dwells on, such as the sure. diner scene and the back and forth. But the chemistry between, obviously, Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal mm-hmm. is so spot on. Yeah, and I mean, the fact, yeah, Carrie Fisher is your best friend. Like, that says something about your movie right there. It is. It's one of those movies that I think gets kind of lost in the movies that came after it and because of it. And sure, it did is responsible for a lot of really crappy movies in that vein. But on its own, it is. It's really funny and it's a really believable and fun love story. Okay. I mean, when it comes to Carrie Fisher, which Carrie Fisher do you want as your best friend? Do you want when Harry met Sally Carrie Fisher or Wishful Drinking Carrie Fisher? I like to think they're the same. I like to think that when Harry Metalli eventually becomes wishful drinking Carrie Fisher. So <laughs> So I want I'm just taking taking her all in. I think she's Carrie Fisher's really as she's uh getting old, she's only aging aging into herself as an actress. She's yeah. Her late her stuff now she's obviously gone through that dark period is just phenomenal yeah. and she's uh if you ever get a chance to read any of her writing, I really recommend it. It's really yeah, good stuff. Sure. So And she also I think now uh, uh, and we're still not where we should be, but I think um, the modern culture is starting to talk about the fact that we don't treat actresses over a certain age the way we should. Yeah. And it's becoming a bigger problem and a more, it's becoming addressed, whether it's being fixed or not, I don't know. But I think that helps that now you have somebody like Carrie Fisher who's like, I've been saying this shit for years. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you know Carrie Fisher, you have. And there was a great article about the... Um, new Star Wars trailer and how it shows like how amazing it is that they show Carrie Fisher and she has wrinkles and oh my god how great is it to see Princess Leia at the age she is now yeah. but then it makes a point of saying like yeah and at first you're like oh it's so great to see yeah, Harrison Ford with an age appropriate partner <laughs> but then you realize Harrison Ford is still actually 15 years older than Carrie Fisher so wow. and of course nobody says anything about Harrison Ford being showing wrinkles and everything but you know that's oh. a side note Harrison Ford, he's, he's like like made of leather. He's like one of those, <laughs> yeah, but... one of those working actors. He's got all that sort of carnage of being a working actor in the 80s. Same as Kurt Russell. They're like, mm-hmm. they've got the faces of probably manly actors. These these aren't pretty yeah. actors. It's like when you see like interviews and stuff on their, they're doing films now and it's sort of like they insist on doing all their own fights and like the physical sort of stuff because it's it's physical acting it's not stunt work and i just love that that approach but you can see the damage that these guys are coming with yeah it's, exactly and um um 
final thoughts on uh, this one? I mean, is there anything we haven't obviously discussed? I know we haven't talked about the leeches scene, which never gets any easier to watch. <laughs> it's less... Uh... The leeches scene never bothered me as much, but that's because I am a woman. Yeah. So I think the scene where he pulls out the leech from his underwear isn't as a doesn't hit me as hard. Um, there, I mean, there are so many things in life that I anytime I go over a bridge with a train, I'm like, it's a standby me train. Uh, there are many a line I use in life from this movie, and I think it is one that. And I wonder, too, what the right age is for this. Like, I mean, you have children. At what what age do you think y'all show it to them? I would show it to my kids of, uh, I wouldn't say early teens. Like, um, that, that mm-hmm. age of you're sort of, like, discovering yourself when you have that group of friends and you obviously got that sense of independence yeah. um, that these kids have. I mean, obviously, you can, You, I guess you could show it, show it younger. I would... But there's sort of a lot of darker sort of moments within it that I think would sort of lose them, lose the sort of interest in that. But uh, I would say early teens is sort of sort of sort of suitable. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know what you saw classes being early teens. I think it was about twelve, thirteen when I saw. Yeah, it, I so. think that's about the age of the characters. I'd say, and I think they're twelve in the movie, right? Because uh, the last line, I never had friends like I had when I was twelve years old. But um, I love the fact that again, it, it doesn't all end out well for them, you know. Yeah. People die, and I mean, in the book, um, it's it's worse because obviously, uh, Bunny and Vern, who are his two surviving friends, obviously one going on to get married, and the other sort of going into prison and ends up doing odd mm-hmm. jobs. We find out that one's died in a house fire, and the other dies in a car crash. So, essentially, he has no none of this original group yeah. left. But you always the way that Rhino ends it, and I think it works perfectly well with the film is that you have this feeling that you know they could come together and have mm-hmm. like reminisce about this time but at the same time the narrator obviously knows that you know this was a time in their life it was a moment that happened and yeah they all went their separate ways uh after it it's just this experience yeah. that they shared and there's so few stories like that and i think for that it's sort of uh it's probably what helps it stand out and it's probably one of the best and i don't know what the secret is because if you put narration in your film, you can, nine out of ten times, one of the first comments most people have will be, there's no need for the narration, it was overkill. And Stand By Me does, is not. Like, there is, the narration works perfectly. And, like, the film I would compare it to that way is probably The Shawshank Redemption, which is also Stephen King, where it's it makes sense to hear it. It's never overbearing. Uh it helps that it's Richard Dreyfus. The frame device kind of works because I think it gives it this sort of generational thing where he's writing it and you kind of, you see that his son and his friend are like going to the beach or something. So it's sort of a, you could see maybe what made him want to sit down and write that story that day. Yeah, he's tucked uh, up in his old school Mac. Yeah, oh, <laughs> totally. Yeah, no, yeah 1986. But, oh, um, did you, when you were watching it, did, um, uh, turn to that Neil Patrick Harris series where he's supposed to be the Doctor. Doogie Howser, MD. Yeah, when you were watching it, yep. did you uh, think of, like, play the Doogie Howser theme tune in your head? Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Big Doogie Howser fan back in the day. And, yeah, it's the sitting down and typing in that word processor, totally. No, to speak, obviously, just about narration and voiceover, I personally love it. I love yeah, it, it works in this one. Um, yeah. 
unless it's like someone being really stupid where they're basically just like doing an Arnold Schwarzenegger commentary when just describing what's happening on the screen. <laughs> oh, I love Arnold Schwarzenegger commentaries. <laughs> when he always talks about boobs it's fantastic i i don't know did did no one explain to him how what a commentary, what a commentary is. is and he was just like oh, I... oh this is the scene where i where i shoot the guy see i shoot him right there yeah i, I shot him see i'm trying to see the screen and he's blocking it <laughs> <laughs> oh see he doesn't know that i'm the terminator but i am the terminator so now now he knows because i kill him uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah i mean there again is an actor who's embellishes the fact that he has catchphrases i mean if you, <laughs> if you get a chance to read this book it's it's i have to i got it for my dad for christmas actually i should yeah from apart it. from a strange fascination with his ex-wife um mm. who he speaks really fondly of um to say they're separated they they speak he speaks incredibly fondly of her and he skips over perhaps some of the film stuff like he concentrates on the early films then sort of skips over the late ones which really sort of annoyed uh annoyed me a lot but he's uh, a really interesting guy and he writes um, a really good book as well but yeah it's uh it's funny obviously the fact that how he works it out with obviously like doing the catchphrases and stuff and the fact that he embraces these catchphrases he's created for himself such as like the get to the chopper yeah i mean he did that uh jimmy i think it's jimmy kimmel uh one with the one that's supposed to be on qvc and he's he's wanting to talk about this chopper <laughs> nice. I'll put it in the link if you uh, if anyone hasn't seen that, so uh, you can enjoy that. Um, further viewing though, uh, where'd you go from here? Um, it's a good question because I can think of movies that try to do this and don't really quite get there. Which I think now and then is one, which is one that came out in the mid '90s with um, a young Thora Birch and Gabby Hoffman and Christina Ricci, and. It, it's like it was the movie that my friends watched and I was like, guys, Stand By Me is so much better. <laughs> uh, there's The Sandlot, which we actually talked about on my show a couple of weeks ago. And it's clearly one that is so indebted to Stand By Me, right down to the narration and right down to the fade out of this is what happens to my friends when they got older. Mm. And again, it's it's not as good. It's cute. It's sort of a like G-rated version of Stand By Me in some ways. Uh, but then I thought of one that I think is a a little more um, in step with kind of the spirit of Stand By Me. And that would be, let me see if I get the year right on it. I think it's 2004 Undertow, which was David Gordon Green. Uh, and it's a sort of about these two boys who are kind of, I think, like 12 and 15. And basically they're... Um, I think it's like their mother dies, their stepfather is, uh, it's a little bit Night of the Hunter-esque, where I think the stepfather is trying to get something from them, so they basically go on the run, and they're running through uh, kind of this boggy Louisiana sort of territory, Yeah. and that, I think, is a good pairing with Stand By Me. It's very good, has a lot of... Um, a lot of good actors in it and even a good performance by Kristen Stewart, if you can believe that. <laughs> uh, but it's a similar kind of tone. And I think it also believably manages to be about kids that age. So that's where I would go from here. Okay. Um, for myself, it's, I'm kind of like trying to avoid just going for like the typical sort of eighties movies, but obviously the, you mentioned already the Sandlot um, films like The Goonies, Weird Science are really good ones to sort of tie into it. And mm -hmm. to an extent, uh, you, 
if you wanted, you could obviously look at some like the gang movies, things like The Outsiders or The Drifters. Oh, yeah. Uh, or sorry, The Wanderers. Yeah, Outsiders would be a very good pairing. Um, and obviously, again, just seeing Sutherland though makes me just want to go and watch Lost Boys again. So yeah. uh, I'm going to pair, pair Stand By Me and The Lost Boys. You know? That works. Get Coming of Age and it. Vampires. Yeah. So I see it. I um, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, when we return, we'll be looking at the second film of this evening, uh, the early McConnell McCorkin starring film, The Good Son. Yeah! Hello, everybody. On behalf of Nick, Joe, and Vern, we would like to invite you back for a brand new season of the As You Watch podcast. In our upcoming season, we will be talking about franchises, trilogies, and series of movies that you will recognize and some that you may not. We will also continue to post fun and insightful interviews with many people in the world of entertainment, as well as feature a lot of great guests from other sites and podcasts. So be sure to check us out on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Podomatic, and on Facebook. And don't forget to check out our older episodes on our site, asyouwatch.wordpress.com. Still joining me is Emily and Trevina. And Travia, but that Intrivia. works. I apologize. You would have thought that after That's like cool. I, I've time. Worst I have ways of saying my name. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, obviously in the first half we uh, discussed one of your favorite movies, Stand By Me. Uh, we're now on to mm-hmm. a film which I hadn't seen, but you re- picked from the list uh, as the pairing for this film. And that's The Good Son. Yeah. This is a film which I... Originally thought was uh, something else. I thought for some reason this was a sort of ghost story, but it's not. It's uh, in fact it's uh, as we mentioned already. It's a Ellie film of Elijah Wood, whose mother, having died just recently of cancer, is sent to live with uh, live with his uncle. Is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uncle uh, and aunt. Who while his uh, while his father's away and is while he's there, he discovers that his cousin Henry, here played by McCollum McCulkin, perhaps isn't as good a son as he might seem. Uh-huh. Uh, this is a film, when I watched it, I was so overjoyed because I'd finally found a companion piece, The Wonderful Orphan. At the same time, this film is absolutely batshit insane. It is bonkers. It's, uh, yeah, here we obviously have another bad seed movie something a rarity we don't seem to get too many sort of bad seed movies these days and not nearly enough not nearly enough in this day and age i would say the last one would have been the children um and we had the remake of can you kill a child but well see i would i group them in two different 
uh, classes because you have, I think, evil child film is different from evil children films. Because I think, like, the children, children of the corn who can kill a child, are sort of like a mass hysteria on a bunch of kids. Like, Village of the Damned would go in that category. But then when you're talking about, like, the bad seed, the good son, orphan, case 39, that's when you're dealing with, like, one child where something is wrong. And I think they're, like, two. I treat them as two, mostly because I really like both evil child and evil children films. Um, But I think of them as, I group them, I separate them. To me, it's zombies and vampires, two totally different things. Yeah, and there's, I can uh, totally understand that. I mean, obviously, with a group of children, it's sort of more the mob mentality. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Whereas if it's obviously the bad sea picture, it's this individual. Just you know, that this... one little child. Yeah, I couldn't also help when I was watching this film to wonder if the script had been intent- originally intended for older characters and that having not been able to sell it, that they rewrote it so it was children. As the number of scenes, obviously, when we get into this a bit more, I obviously highlight them more, but I have to say that this really, if anything, highlights the maturity of McCollum McCulkin as an actor. Obviously, most people know him from Home Alone and like Richie Rich, and we saw him as just writing most just being this child actor, but when you compare him to Elijah Wood's performance as a child actor, there is a hell of a noticeable difference. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, what did you obviously think of uh, Culkin in this one? Well, yeah, oh yeah, I think um, I think he's great in it. He's, I mean, he's Rhoda Penmark for 1993, and this movie was ri- it wasn't written for him. Uh, it was actually written by I don't know if you looked into um, the background. It was written by Ian McEwan. Yeah. Who is a, I mean, famed novelist and Never Let Me Go and no, not Never Let Me Go. Um, Atonement. 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 Uh, and I think at some point, I think Ian McEwan was no longer attached to the script, but they, he's still the sole credit for it. Uh, and what happened was, I think the script was going around. It was going to get made a couple of different times. And then basically Macaulay Culkin's dad, who was his manager, when he kind of saw that this movie was going to get made, he's like, Macaulay needs to be in it. Because I think they wanted to show him as doing more adult stuff and to show his range because he had been doing at this time primarily kid stuff and I think contractually basically he did the rule was if he did Home Alone 2 he could do The Good Son that basically I think it was I don't know if it was I guess it would have been Fox uh, or Paramount that that's that was the script deal was that he would come back for Home Alone 2 if he could also be The Good Son and The Good Son which is really interesting from, and I don't know how much, say, you know, little 10-year-old Macaulay Culkin had in it and how much of it was his kind of stage dad. Uh, but, I mean, to his credit, he takes it and he goes with it and he plays a little bastard. Oh, he, he certainly is. Um, yeah. There's no denying it. And I love the fact that it's not clear from the start. I mean, that we have these the, the, the two cousins. Uh, obviously, we've got uh, Mark, here played by Elijah Wood, uh, and we said already, we've got Henry, who's the bad seed. And they start off as friends, and it starts off as sort of like, sort of what young boys do. It's all about mischief and and. Mayhem. Is that what young boys do? And like the first day they play together, they shoot dart guns at cats. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you you, as I said, not cats necessarily, but you know, small animals. Is that? that hunter and maiming mentality that small children okay. have. Oh, it could just be the, 
you know, the results of growing up in the countryside. Mm-hmm, true. Because whenever I try to explain countryside mentality to my townie friends, they don't tend to understand it. There's a number of issues that uh, people who live in the countryside differ greatly from those who live in, like, the city. Sure, that makes um, Yeah, you're finding different ways to have fun, I guess. Yeah, it's... Like building 60-foot-high tree, tree houses. <laughs> yeah, ones with, uh, with very questionable ladders. <laughs> always, always. An orphan has... A, that's the other thing, and I know you mentioned it. Orphan has so many random callbacks to this movie, and I don't know if they're intentional or not, but part of it is, like, this ridiculously elaborate and unsafe treehouse in the middle of nowhere. I mean, obviously, as, as you said, I mean, we got the, the, like, almost... They form this, like, almost relationship, almost like brothers. And he, yep. very quickly, they sort of come to trust each other. But obviously, Henry slowly starts to reveal his sort of that uh, he might not be quite all there. I mean, obviously, we've mentioned already you've got the the dark gun and the fact that he cons- he becomes like ever more dark dark and it's not like a sudden switch. It's just very slowly. And there's a number of when they're trying to obviously show this darkness. This is really uneasy moment where. He accuses uh, Mark of fancying his sister, Connie. Uh, mm-hmm. And it sort of like comes out of nowhere. It's sort of like these two characters had no relationship at all outside of like, you know, passing friendliness. But all of a sudden we're supposed to assume that Mark's now wanting to uh, have some sort of relationship with Connie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it seems- Oh, yeah. It's the, the Henry's mind games are kind of one of the worst parts of it. Because and- he's the way he plays people against each other and kind of makes Mark look crazy is, is very skillful for a child of his age. Oh, definitely. And again, it's where you can call back to orphan. Yep. Um, in the, the mind games are very similar. Obviously when orphan, you've got the, the younger, the younger sister being caught up in these games the same way that Mark is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the amount of depth that they actually add to Henry. I mean, they could have just done a Mr. Spin, you know, this, crazy psychotic child but they add all these elements as such the fact that we got his younger baby brother richard um who was killed and the mystery surrounding his death because for more his parents assume that he just drowned in the tub but we sort of find out that henry may be more responsible than for that than he Mm, obviously gave and the fact that we have that they reveal this just through his little souvenir the little rubber duck yeah um and it's all like the script sort of trusting itself enough for the audience to figure these things out and probably going, oh, see, see, Duck's there. See, he mm-hmm. did it. Um, and pointing fingers at that. But I did find as the film went on, it did become kind of more implausible. And this is what made me think that they'd wrote it for like an older actor. The ending especially. <laughs> and I don't know if you want to skip ahead to the ending already. I mean, you have to talk about the ending. It's a movie that everybody should see, but... The ending is such a important part of the movie that I think we do have to spoil it at some point. Okay. I mean, obviously we've got this, this end showdown where Mark and Henry are brawling on top of a cliff, which... As you do. I, I mean, I was just, I was laughing my ass off the whole way through the scene. We've got uh, Henry's mother, who's hanging off a cliff at this point, having been pushed off the cliff by Henry. And the fact is, you've got these two children brawling on top of this cliff ledge... Yep. That it's very sort of traditional sort of set up for like a an an a thriller with like adult characters. We've seen it like time and time again, but the fact it's children having the same brawl was just 
just more comical than than anything. And the fact that they both fall off the cliff, and we have like Mark's mother trying to decide which child she's going to drop. <laughs> yep. Uh, oh yeah, it's the Sophie's Choice for a whole different audience, if you will. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, when she drops him, that that was just brilliant. I was like, I just love this movie now. My favorite bit of IMDb trivia, possibly of all time, has to do with that drop. Because apparently when they were filming it, they needed, you know, mo- obviously part of it's a stunt double and everything else. But they needed, I think it was something where they had like Macaulay Culkin dangling at like 30 feet. And they had to have him fall into a net. And him being like 10, understandably, was like, I'm kind of scared to do this. <laughs> and they really needed him. And so basically they worked it out where the director said to him, okay, if we get this shot, we're going to get you a BB gun. They were like, Macaulay, what do you want more than anything in the world? And he was like, a BB gun. And they're like, okay, if you drop from that that cliff, we're going to get you a BB gun. And just the psychology involved in that, in a movie about a sociopathic child who hurts animals and tries to kill his sister and all of that, that the reward for this kid to do a really scary stunt was to give him a BB gun uh, is just one of those things that just makes you be like, yep, this movie, this movie. Oh, <laughs> it's uh, and this, the other scene, which again was far too comical, is the scene where he attempts to kill his sister by throwing her onto thin ice. <laughs> yep. They're basically like skin around, and you know what's going to happen. There's like, oh, yeah. there's no denying it whatsoever. But the fact he whizzes her off, and she just goes in like a perfectly straight line past people who make no effort to stop her. Nope. Um, and it's all like. I mean, she doesn't even make any effort to stop herself. She just sort of, like, slides out into the perfect center of this area, this uh, thin ice area, before, like, suddenly dropping. Yep. Um, it, it, it's more funny than I think it was than uh, intended to be. Definitely. Well, and that's Macaulay Culkin's real sister, too, who I think was, again, part of the kind of contract for the movie was... Macaulay Culkin's dad being like, okay, and you're also putting another sibling in the movie, because this was the age when every movie had, like, four Culkins in it. Yeah. Uh, I don't think she really continued acting, and I don't know if it was that maybe she didn't get a BB gun after she fell into ice. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but it's it's just one more bit of trivia of, like, so, like, my family, like, what would we do together as a family? Like, we'd go to baseball games. We'd, like you know, maybe go to the movies. We didn't go film a movie about children trying to kill each other. Well, that's the thing. I mean, Rory Culkin's in this as well. That's right. He plays Richard. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. They, they always... I mean, it, made, it makes sense when you're making a movie. If, you know, kid actors... It, I imagine when you're casting a child actor, it's equally important to know and essentially cast their parents... Because you're going to get what you can out of the child, but it's going to be the parent's job to make sure you get it, basically. <laughs> and so you want to please the parent more than anything, because they're the ones that could really determine a lot. So yeah. in this case, where you have a very overbearing stage dad, who I think was a failed actor. I'm not sure. I think he, I think Kit Culkin wanted to be an actor. Bonnie Bedelia is his sister, and she did have a career and does have a career. And I think that was a big thing was everybody knew if you were casting a Culkin, you were going to be dealing with the family. Yeah. I mean, again, this is another case of why you shouldn't have 
a parent be your manager. Um, oh, God, Laura yeah. Birch being another example of why you don't let your father be your manager. Yeah, right. Um, essentially ruined her career. Oh, I mean, there's, there's the wonderful scenes where he insisted on watching her do a sex scene and gave the guy thumbs up. <laughs> but then again, yeah. her, her parents were, uh, were ex-porn stars. Oh, yeah, I forgot that. I only found this out because I've been reading uh, Cinema Sewer Volume 1, uh, Robert okay. Boogie's uh, book. And uh, he does this whole section on uh, the porn star past of Fort Betch's parents. So. Wow. That's crazy. But, uh, yeah, so it's sort of, I don't know what their aspirations for their daughter getting into acting were. Um, but, yeah, it, I, you can understand why when you see how much his father sort of screwed around with his career and, and that the reason why he actually divorced his parents. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it also came in that time where he sort of where cooking really went off the rails, really, and sort of disappeared until he came sort of like resurfaced to do Barley Monster, uh, the sort of ill-fated adaptation of the uh, Yeah, well, let's see. This, this was 93, and then, um, oh, wow, that same year he did The Nutcracker. And he did get an uh, dad, like, shortly after. But- I think that was the next film he did. Getting even with Dad, the page mount. Yeah, because then what happened was then basically he had a string of duds where after The Good Son, you had The Nutcracker, Getting Even with Dad, The Page Master, Richie Rich, uh, which all of which were bombs, none of which did well, um, some of which lost a lot of money. And yeah, after Richie Rich, it's nine years before Party Monster comes along. So, uh, It really frustrates me when they say that things like Get Even, Dad, Page Master, Rich Rich were bombs. Because I remember really enjoying them as a kid. And you can tell this is just clearly some adult viewer who's watching a kid's movie. And the fact that he didn't like it is like, oh, this is garbage. But they oh, are yeah, they're, they're perfectly kids. fine for kids, yeah. The uh, And that's why I always go back to North, which I remember watching. Uh, the first time I watched it, I was babysitting. And the kids wanted to watch it, and I'm like, guys, you know this is really bad, but okay. And I watched it, I'm like, this is fine. Like, the kids are happy. I think it's funny. Uh, so, you, yeah, uh, judging kids' films is always an, an odd thing. And, uh, I mean, this was his only real uh, attempt at a movie like this at that age. After, after this, it was just kids' movies until he kind of went into semi-retirement. And The Good Son, I think, did okay. Um, I, I didn't actually check the box office to see if it made money or not. Yeah. I think it was one of those very shocking. A lot of people, Roger Ebert hated it. A lot of critics just thought this was offensive because it was, even though it was probably rated R, it was still, it had Macaulay Culkin's face on the cover. Mm. And I was 11, and I convinced my mom to take me to see it. Uh, it it wasn't aimed at kids, but I'm sure many kids saw it and maybe they shouldn't have. Um, but, you know, after this, for whatever reason, he didn't try to do drama. He didn't try to do other movies like it. Uh, and maybe it's our loss <laughs> because a good oh. son, too, could have could have been something, you know, could have been something. I mean, this is a low budget film. I mean, it was made for 17 million. It made 60.6 million at the box oh, office. So, yeah. So it, it turned a profit. However, when this film was released back in 93, it was caught up in the Jamie Bulger case, which meant that we didn't get a cinema release here, and it didn't show up on uh, VHS until 95. Ah. So we got it two years later. It's so bizarre, the fact that this was obviously caught up in that, that case, which 
notoriously sparked the whole video nasty scandal. Uh, it was sort of one of the, the key sort of elements in that, and saw Child's Play, uh, Child's Play Child's three, three, right? In yeah. particular, getting taken uh, off video shelves. Bizarrely, they, while Child's Play three was the one that was banned, when they started re-releasing them on VHS, Child's Play one was the one that was like a pain in the ass to get. You could get Child's Play two and three, no problem. But Child's hmm. Play one was just an absolute pain in the ass to try and get. Well, even now, uh, I don't know if it's been fixed, but I remember when I got the Blu-ray or the DVD like box set of Child's Play, it's all the movies but one. I think one is under a different production company, or was at one point. Um, so I don't know if that had to do with it, too. I'm not too sure, because, again, it's when you buy the, the Friday the 13th uh, box set, it only goes up to Manhattan. I think that it might have to do with a different studio, because then yeah. I think New Line came into it with uh, part nine or Jason goes to hell. So I think that's often what happens and it's a pain because then you're like, my set isn't complete. It doesn't look right. It's, it's a shame as well because obviously, yeah, because I, I mean, Jason goes to hell. It's a limited press and they did. So that's a pain in the ass. Uh, Jason X is severely underrated and one of my favorites. I love Jason X. Me too. Um, so much fun. Freddy versus Jason. You know, it's a fun movie. I mean, I would have liked more if Kane Hodder had been Jason, but you know, I've kind of but, had to make my peace because I enjoy what it, it does regardless. I do too. I really enjoy Freddy vs. Jason. Um, and then, you know, they stopped making them for both series. Yeah. They never made another film again. And we were all happy. <laughs> I like the way you think. Oh, I'm trying to think now. Uh, final, anything else that I want to bring up? The only thing I, can, I want to bring up, which I've completely forgotten until now to do, and that's the character, the psychologist. Um, and I Facebooked you this after after I watched it, and I really wanted the psychologist to be played by Zelda Rubinstein. Oh, that would have made everything better. That would that would have made a already perfect movie even better. Yeah, and I mean, and this this is already a special movie on its own, but yeah, it's it's just a really, I mean, when you think of what's behind it, and you think, and I'm trying to think of an equivalent because I was thinking about this. And I don't know that we've had anybody near Macaulay Culkin's status as far as child actors go since him. I mean, you've had the, you have a Dakota Fanning, and you've had a few yeah. here and there, but I don't think anybody came near. And if you can remember, you know, when Home Alone came out in 1991, what a hit that movie was. And for it all to really rest on the shoulders of this nine-year-old actor... And kind of just from that point, like, who this kid was. And he hosted Saturday Night Live, I remember. Like, it, he was a phenomenon in, in, in himself. And I don't know that we've had an equivalent of that since him. Probably for good reason. I, I mean, I don't think it's healthy for a child of that age to have that much success. And it, you know, it certainly didn't turn out great for him at that time. I hope he's doing well now. Every once in a while, the internet tells everybody that he's dead. But as far as I know, he's not. <laughs> no, he's still alive. Uh, yeah. But I think, you know, it, it was too much success at once. And really, but it's fascinating that from the, the, those films, you got this out of all of that. And it's, it's not talked about that much. And that's why I'm really glad that you brought it up uh, for us to discuss. Because I don't think enough people have seen it. And it by no means is a great film. But it's just so bizarre. And 
especially for its time, for the early 90s, when you had this really uh, kind of undefinable style of theatrical horror, where you have less memorable films that came out in that era. Uh, and then when you go back and look at them, you see like, oh, there's some good ones, but there was just no theme. And this at this time, you you didn't have a lot of evil children films, but you had a few here and there. Um, and for this to come out of the most successful child actor possibly of all time uh, at the height of his fame is just fascinating. I mean, in, in answer to obviously a question why we haven't seen another McCullough McCulkin, um, the two main reasons would be that when we have young child actors, they're either cast as being adorable or they're being churned out by the house mouse, which means mm. that they're using the Disney style of acting, which is to basically overact every scene you can while everything's painted in horrible day glow colors. Um, and there is, of course, living in this world where children are smarter than adults who are just bumbling fools and as I said there's no evil in the world it's all day glow we're no longer in these times where people overdose on uh, on mm-hmm. caffeine pills and sing I'm so excited um, <laughs> or have huge phones while creepily obsessing over the high school cheerleader we're no longer in this time where we can have this sort of sense of realism or where a child actor can be trusted to carry sort of material the same McCorkin was done done with like the home alone movies or with like uncle buck going back uh mm-hmm. back oh, yeah, then great. i mean he was he was good then i mean he wasn't particularly doing anything strenuous he was just basically playing up his adorableness more than yeah anything. i mean he was a smart ass child actor and it worked for um, him um but yeah i mean when you look at like films like getting even with dad and richie rich again these he's been given the freedom to to act the, the performance rather than to obviously do what what Disney likes to do, and you see this on any sort of live-action show that Disney do now, where everything has to be overacted. It it's very broad, be, yeah. The comedy has to be so highlighted, and it's like, like while there might not be yeah. a laugh track there, we're, we're certainly going to like sort of highlight, this is where the joke is. And, and now that, I'm, that we're, we're talking about Disney, I'm thinking the only person I could think of as a modern Macaulay Culkin would be Miley Cyrus. Uh, because, I mean, she was, when she was Hannah Montana, yeah. that was a really similar uh, height of popularity with a very particular demographic. Mm. And, I mean, what she did that with that was essentially, you know, you know what, I don't want my, I'm tired of my, of this disnified version of myself and this is how I'm going to revolt against it. And here we go, dad and everything else. So, But isn't it always interesting? like the most fun when uh, Disney princesses go bad. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I, there's a, like the more I kind of see it, the more I'm like, you know, I kind of have a little bit more respect for Miley Cyrus than I ever thought I would, because I think she managed to kind of take control of, uh, you know, a persona that was essentially being created and she kind of, you know, to her level of success, I don't know what it is, but the idea that she sort of said, well, you know, if you're putting me out there, well, here, I'm going to put myself out there and blah, here's my tongue. Yeah. Uh, there's something kind of weirdly empowering that I respect about that, even if it's not my thing. The problem I have with her, though, and the same when uh, Vanessa Hudgens' nude photos appeared on the internet, still to date, the only uh, 
actress under a Disney contract not to get fired when a scandal like that is hit. Mm, yeah. Uh, well, she was able, whether she did or not, she was able to, when that happened with Vanessa Hudgens, it was, oh, no, somebody leaked those photos. It wasn't her. Yeah. It probably was. Uh, but I think that was part of uh, maybe the defense in that. Yeah. But you have them, and they, like, try to do these shows of sexuality, and it's always, like, the sense of you can sort of tell them going, is this sexy? They're trying so hard. And yeah. And sort of, like, you know, yes, you're a child actor. It doesn't mean that you have to, like, try and act like an adult. You can you know, just be an adult. And that's, yeah. again, why I love um, Melissa Joan Hart. She aced into herself wonderfully now. Oh, God. I, well, yeah, but she's kind of a, a kook. She's a little bit of a uh, very conservative Christian um, uh, kind of psycho. But, but... I think, Yeah, I think this is where we, we obviously get the we get the sort of sheltered side over here in the UK. Where right, obviously right. The, the US, you obviously get the full Joan Hart she, experience. She's also local. She's from the, a couple of towns away from where I grew up. Um, so her, she's always like in the news for us. But yeah, she's sort of of the camera, the Kirk Cameron uh, ilk now, I think. Which is a shame because she did, you're right, in terms of just her acting and her, the, you know, kind of career choices, she did actually do that. She kind of stepped away when she wasn't, when she, you know, wasn't finding, I guess, what was good for her. And then eventually came back as an, you know, older, but what, like 30 something um, actress and found what works for her, which is like Hallmark movies and mm. religious dramas. So good honor for that. You know, she uh, had a friendship for the longest time with Shirley Temple as well. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, on Cribs, she's got this signed uh, photos of uh, Shirley huh. Temple. Interesting. Makes sense. Um, that's in constantly shown as where she hides all the alcohol in her house. So, no, you know, I mean, everybody, everybody has their spots. <laughs> Everyone likes a drink. For viewing, um, anything that you want to particularly pair this with? I know we obviously mentioned Orphan already. Um, if you want to go really old school, I guess you could say like the Bad Seed. Yeah, well, it's um, funny because we, um, I just watched The Bad Seed today because we're covering it this week on The Feminine Critique. And it was so great to watch knowing that I'd be talking about The Good Son today because I really do think The Bad Seed is the birth of the evil child film. Mm. And it lays out so much of the groundwork because you have, you know, the, the seemingly perfect, polite to adults, um, puts herself together well and plays it well because you don't you know it's it's very much the mold of what that child is uh so i told if you haven't seen the bad seed you have to uh orphan obviously and then the other one i would pair which is an evil child film except it's about three children but i would still put it under evil child film based on my criteria and that is 1981's bloody birthday yay I know that was one that I think it was one that we were tossing around doing, and I think on a future show we will be looking at that one. Um, it's just recently been added to exploitation.tv as well. Okay. Yeah, I think they just put out a really good Blu ray release of it, too. I've only seen it once, but I can't really remember before, it that yes. well. It is, uh, I mean, it is a slasher about three evil children who are evil because they were born during an eclipse, and apparently that makes you just a sociopath. Uh, and so you have two boys and one girl, and it's similar where they appear very polite and perfect to everybody, but they are 
and just the things that make them murder people are so simple. Their teacher gives them homework one night, so they, of course, murder her. <laughs> and it's the kills are ridiculous. Um, it's really over the top and fun. And it, again, it's like 75 minutes long, so they get in and get out with everything you want and has a great ending uh so i so that's depending on your mood if you want to go classy you go with the bad seed if you want to go um i guess really quality you can go orphan because i think orphan is actually a very very good film and if you want to go just sleazy fun you go bloody birthday oh very uh, strong choices i look forward to obviously seeing which version of uh the bad seed that you see because it's obviously the cuts, which I believe is the cut that now circulates, where it basically descends with her getting a spanking, which was deemed really oh, I think controversial that's all of at the time. Them. Yeah, no, that's that's how they they ended the film. Because I I keep hearing that there's like a another ver- the other version, and that for the longest time the censored version of her getting spanking, which again, as I said, was just super controversial back when it was released, was there uh, was like this um, lost ending that had only sort of been rediscovered because they if you buy the orphan. Uh, special features uh it does obviously go into the bad seed and the whole mythos of the bad seed uh yeah sort of genre and it's well worth uh, checking out uh, certainly I check have... orphan out but uh you know i i own orphan but i don't think it has any special features they must have put out another edition oh, okay. region okay. two definitely has them, okay so. okay yeah the the bad seed is uh i mean part of the big thing about that was it was made um during the haze code in the states when movies had to end with the you know if there was an antagonist they had to get punished and so you have the stage version and the book of the bad seed which end on a very dark note uh and then the film had to undo the film had to end with the villain being punished and it's ridiculous because the way it happens in the movie is the definition of a deus ex machina uh but the idea that that was more acceptable to audiences in the 50s than, you know, this evil little girl getting away with it is just odd in itself. And again, is why it's a really interesting pairing with The Good Son, where they didn't have to end it. They could have ended it any way, and they chose to end it with a mother choosing her nephew over her, you know, over her own flesh and blood who happens to be evil. Like, it's, it's just fascinating. I love that it goes there. Yeah, because I'm trying to remember, is it Bolt of Lightning or something that kills Rose? Oh yeah, it's lightning. It's it's ridiculous. <laughs> it is literal lightning strikes her, and that that's how it ends. And you know, because and in because in the stage play and in the book, uh, her mother tries to kill her and then kills herself, and the mother doesn't make it, but Rhoda's okay, and so Rhoda keeps going. And it's a much darker ending, but it's also, the. on one hand, it's a darker ending. On the other hand, a child lives, whereas in the film, a child dies, and that's considered good. So it's uh, fascinating, I think, for a lot of reasons. And that's and to me, that's the beauty and part of what makes evil uh, kid films so interesting is that idea of, and you go, look at Michael Myers as a prime example, too, what makes Michael Myers so horrifying in the first Halloween is that he was just an innocent, he was just a child and there was no reason for him to do these things, but he just had blackness in his soul. And what do you do? You lock him up and hope he never gets out. Speaking of Michael Myers, there's something I wanted to see pick up because in a recent edition of the Feminine Critique, you were saying about how much you dislike the second version of Rob Zombie's 
Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently, when I was listening to his interview on the British Nurse podcast, and it turns out the fact that he'd originally tended to do the first Halloween film we did was supposed to be two films. The first film would do would be the origins of Michael Myers. Okay. And then the second one would be the traditional one, but the studios apparently didn't like that, and that's why they crammed it into one film, and that's mm-hmm. why it's this joint, disjointed mess that it is, yeah. and why everyone loves the first half because it was more developed and hates the second half because it's basically a retread that he was forced to do. Um, and basically he, Halloween 2 being his attempts to sort of salvage it in a way, but I think by that point he was so bombarded with studio notes of and so forced to meet this deadline that he could uh, he couldn't really do the film he wanted. He was sort of written himself into a corner. But I still hold uh, I still look forward to uh, the next thing Rob Zombie does, even if he's moving away from horror. He's going on to do the Groucho Marx biopic, which, considering how much he loves the Marx Brothers, I think it's going to be really interesting to see. I mean, I'm rooting for Rob Zombie. I really am. I think. Uh... You know, I, I love that he's one of us. He's a horror fan. You can see that in what he makes. Yeah. I don't think he's a, you know, I think he's made uh, two, I, he's made some good films. I, I like Lords of Salem. Uh, I appreciate what he tried to do. I really like Devil's Rejects. I appreciate House of a Thousand Corpses. Uh, I, you know, I I want him to do something that makes us all happy. Um it looks like he is currently making a film called 31, which is about people being trapped in murder world and playing a violent game uh, against evil clowns. So that's fine. I'm up for that. Yeah, 31 is uh, the movie he basically he wanted to do something cheap um, and quick. And 31 was the, the okay. what he came out with. Um, I'm looking forward to it. He's got Malcolm it. McDowell in there again. He's got Daniel Roebuck, Meg Foster. I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, I, I think he, I mean, what I would love to see him do is to have a writer because I think he has so much passion and has so much enthusiasm and his filmmaking is good, but without uh, somebody telling him pull back, I don't think he'll ever make something great. Um, So that's what I'd like to see is I'd like to see him have a little bit of a leash uh, but I don't know when we'll get that. I think, so. yeah, he needs needs a, at least a co-writer. He needs like yeah. a, a, a Wong and Morgan style situation where he writes something and then he has someone coming in and it's like, you know what, maybe just tone this back. <laughs> maybe every other word doesn't need to be fuck. Just you know, a thought. Just maybe, a thought. Maybe we don't need to set this in the 70s, Rob. You know? <laughs> maybe they don't live in a trailer. Just, just putting it out there. Just putting it out there. But um, he's one of the few directors I will allow... The, the ability to go and do like this sort of horror expendables yeah. where you have the, a lot of these directors now and it's all like look I've got this guy who was in this movie from the mm. 70s and look it's Sid Haig you remember Sid Haig um, where when he does it you can tell he's casting people for what they can do it's not but he's also story. casting them slightly against type which I like mm. like he's casting uh, these actors, but he's not just having them do the same thing. He's giving them something a little more interesting so you don't just see, like, uh, you know, Ken Forey and think, like, oh, okay, so he's gonna... Oh, no, he's actually kind of the funky uh, helping character. Okay, that's interesting. Like, Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, and on that note, uh, brings us to the end of another edition of the uh, Mad, Bad, and Damage Strange Showcase. Fabulous. Um, Emily, thank you again for coming on. And, uh, thank you so much for having me. 
Um, there aren't many people that are willing to discuss the the good sun with me for 45 <laughs> minutes, so thank you. That's okay. Um, obviously, our next episode, we've got not only yourself back, but we've also got your partner in crime, Christine, coming back. As our next episode is going to be our alternate Christmas special, part two. The first of which selections, we've got a film which has been championed by Emily for, I would say, the last four years. Uh, <laughs> one that I only last year saw and now put in that special place of Christmas horror that I put the Star Wars Holiday Special. So we are going to be looking at The Nutcracker in 3D. In 3D! <laughs> the Untold Story in 3D. Um, I'm not even going to spoil the insanity of this movie. All I'm going to say is that go onto YouTube because it is streamed there or find a DVD and watch this. I'm not, Just watch it blind. Um, and even if I told you, it would not prepare you for how random this is. I know we talked about it on the previous um, alternate Christmas special we did back uh, last mm-hmm. year. Yep. Um, and we're also going to be, for our second selection, we're going to be looking at another Christmas slasher, which in the first one we did Christmas Evil, and we did Silent Night, Deadly Night, and inevitably did the whole of Silent Night, Deadly Night. Um, but we're going to be looking at another classic, and that's Black Christmas. Ah, yeah. So it's going to be another fun pack show on show. And obviously it's going to be great, obviously, having the Feminine Critique take over the third show in the week. Well, third show in a row, should I say. So um, nice. it's going to be good. Um, yep. But until then, it, uh, thank you again, Emily, for coming on. It was my pleasure. Um, and this is our John. Sign off another edition of the Mad, Bad and Darren Strange Showcase. Remind you, as always, to keep it strange. <laughs> <laughs>